0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Good morning everyone. Good to see all of you here, especially those who came back from the church camp. And uh, commend your perseverance to come to church on time today. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you will help us with this difficult topic of pride, ego, wealth, and we pray that we may look at ourselves honestly and truthfully, and indeed, if our faith is inconsistent with our thinking and our deeds, we pray that the Holy Spirit may convict us so that we will reform our ways and be faithful to you, and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was reading this book uh, over the last few weeks, and it said that actually, in every church, there are four types of people. And uh this is the diagram that was provided, sort of, I sort of made together. Is it up there? Yep. So, within the church, there are like people who are safe in Christ, but they don't know it because maybe they have a weak conscience or their knowledge is not very good. There are people who are safe in Christ, but they know it. And that's great, right? But at the same time, There are people who are in danger. They are in danger because they are not safe in Christ and they don't know it. Maybe they're ignorant or they're complacent. Or there may be people who know that they're not safe in Christ and they just don't care because they don't realize the cause or they're just rebellious. Now today as we look in this passage, it's actually part of the whole of the book of James. And the book of James really is trying to convict people who are in that category of being in danger because they are not safe in Christ. And it is really summarized in James chapter 2, right? which is the next slide, where it says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Okay, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you were to go to him and say, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but there's nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So here as we look at this passage, James is a bit like a test, a bit like a uh, a wake-up call for those, next slide, who are in danger. They are in church, they are in the fellowship of believers, but they are in danger because their faith it is not real saving faith, it is a dead faith. so in a way, James is a bit like a spiritual thermometer which is measuring our spiritual health, and it's a bit like a, a measurement or a test to 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 wake us up to see if our faith is consistent with our deeds, whether our deeds reflect a true and saving faith in our hearts. So today we're going to look at chapter 4 verse 13 and it deals first and foremost with the problem of pride and ego. So in verse 13 it reads, Now listen you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now obviously when you read this sentence you don't really see immediately if there's anything wrong. I mean this is how people talk. But if you, if you look at the uh, Greek translation, you'll see that the word we will, we will, we will is actually consistently repeated in its original language. Today or tomorrow we will go to this and that city. We will spend a year there. We will carry on business and we will make money. And when the people of the world speak like this, that's fine. But when Christians, people of faith speak like this, then really they are in danger. The the spiritual thermometer is flashing. Because when we speak like this, we show that we are seduced by the world and its thinking into thinking that we are in control of our future. We are masters of our destiny. We are the ones who are rulers over our future. We are saying that we have autonomy, we have independence, we have self rule. And what we have done is we've taken God with the big G and replaced it with ourselves as God as a small g and saying that we will determine our future we will decide what we will do in the future now in verse 14 there is a reality check because it says why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow what is your life you are a mist that appears for a little while And then vanishes. So this is like the wake up and smell the coffee reality check, right? And the first thing it says is, what is your reality? Your reality is that you don't have the knowledge of God, yet you claim to be God. You claim to know the future, but actually in reality you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour. Now I remember about a year or two ago, I was sitting down having lunch. He a very rich man. He had married into the family of one of the richest Indonesian families. And you know, Indonesian, they can be very, very rich, right? And he was telling me about all the plans that he was going to have for the following year. It was about November, December. By that night, he was admitted to hospital with a stroke and he has yet to be discharged from hospital. So, here was a man with many, many great plans for the future. But, his knowledge was limited. His foreknowledge of the future was limited. He thought he had control over the future, but he didn't. Because we don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. In fact, it says that our life is like a mist. Now the word here, mist, uh, is next picture. It's like the idea of like steam coming out of a kettle. And obviously for those of us who you know, who have seen steam coming out of kettle, you know that it's just there for a moment. It's just there for a a brief, transitory moment. It's gone immediately as soon as it appears. And he says that's what our life is like. So when we, people who know God, people of faith, say we will do all these things, we will do this, we will do that, we will do this, we are actually betraying a reality which is inconsistent with ourselves. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and our life is like a mist. And that's why when Jesus told this parable in Luke chapter 12, which is what we just did for our responsive reading, it's actually a commentary on James chapter 4. It's like a very close cousin to what we're reading today. Because I want you to look at this passage. Next slide. Uh, okay, next one. You notice the way the rich person speaks in the parable that Jesus gives. He speaks exactly like the person in James chapter 4 verse 13. He says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what he said. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and then I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. And what does God say about this man? What is God's verdict of this way of thinking? He says, this man was a fool. He was a fool because he's not God He doesn't know the future and he has no control over the future and his life is like a mist. So James goes on in verse 15 and he goes on to say, instead, you ought to say, if this is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now obviously, James is not saying that we know we should go around just uh, in every sentence adding, if it is the Lord's will, like, Okay, will I see you in church today? If it is the Lord's will, right? Uh, where are we gone for lunch later? Chicken chop? Yeah, if it is the Lord's will, we'll go to chicken chop. Uh, you go to church camp? Yeah, if it is the Lord's will, we'll go... God, uh, James is not saying that. That's not what God wants. What is actually happening is it, it's, it's actually an expression of the heart's attitude. The worldview. The perspective that you see the world. And what it's actually saying is we surrender control of the future to God. And we say, God, you rule over my life. You rule over the future. It is not for me to decide the future. It is for you to decide the future. Now verse 16 and 17 go on to say, As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, Verse 16 and 17 are actually very helpful because it helps us to see that there's nothing wrong with planning. All right? Planning is good. Right? You need to plan for church camp. Right? You need to plan for the year and dinner. You know, you need to plan for your life. But verse 16 and 17 show us that actually what is being said here is boasting. When you say, I'm going to do all these things, when you say, I, I will have all these plans. It is not actually planning, it is boasting. It is boasting within the context of saying that you control your future. Now I want you to notice something uh, and you have to reflect a bit more about this passage, right? Because verse 13 is boasting within the context of making money in verse 13, right? And it seems as if there is a correlation between money and wealth and thinking and boasting and bragging that you have control over your future. So it's no coincidence that verse 13 is about making money and Luke chapter 12 is about the rich man because the problem seems to be that as you get rich, you forget God and you think that you have power over your future. Now there are two other passages in the Bible, which seem to have the same idea. So 1 John chapter 2, which is up here, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now what you notice is, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Again in Proverbs chapter 30, it says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? So I think the common theme here is one where as you are affluent, as you are rich, you deceive yourself and you think that you actually are God yourself. You boast and brag about your plans and your ability to achieve those plans because you have money. But this is, as it says there in James, evil. This is sin. Right? This actually puts you Uh, within the spiritual thermometer fever zone. Because you're actually showing that you have no faith in God, and your faith is only in yourself. In fact, not only yourself, it's more in your money. You have faith in your money to deliver your future, the things that you want to achieve. And it's all tied together, your money, your wealth, your affluence, and your ability to control the future. So, next slide, I want you to just think for yourself, do you talk like this, or do you have this internal conversation yourself thinking, I control my future, I will do this, I will do that, do you boast and brag about how you have the capacity and capability to do all these things, primarily because you are financially able to? Or you are so gifted that you are able to because you are able to make money to do these things. Do you boast and brag about what you are going to do and what you have? So I remember once, um, I can't remember why or what the context was. There was a pastor, and I mentioned it before, this guy, David Burke, and he was telling me about how somebody came up to him once and told him about all the plans that they were going to have in their future. And this guy said, you know, he was already a really very successful man. And he said, you know, I'm going overseas. I'm going to study for MBA or do some further studies. And now I'm going to stay in this place and I'm going to work there for a while. Then I'm going to get all these skills. And I'm going to come back to Singapore and I'm going to do all these things. And then so on and so forth. And I always remember the profound answer that this guy, David, said to this fellow. And he said, where is God in all this? Where is God in all your plans? Is God's will a part of your all these decisions making? Is God, you know, will you be open to God changing your plans for the future? Maybe it's not God's will for you to go to do this MBA. Maybe it's not God's will for you to stay overseas. Maybe it's not God's will for you to be successful in this way. Maybe God wants you to do something else. Where is God in all your plans? And I thought that was that was such a profound answer, right? Because this person, even though he was going to church, was making all his plans without God in the picture. There was no acknowledgement of God's control over his life. There was no acknowledgement of God's desire for doing what he wants him to do. It was all just me, me, me and what I want to do. Well, the Bible says very clearly that that's evil and that's sin. Now in chapter 5, the passage then goes on and it doesn't address so much pride and ego but the problem of money and wealth itself. Now listen, you rich people, and this is probably one of the most uh, striking passages about wealth in the Bible, right? Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, it begins with a contrast because in the world that we live in, as in the ancient world, if you were rich, how would you respond? You respond with joy. You respond with enjoying your wealth. You respond with blessings. right? But here is the opposite, right? It says weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. So it says, yeah, okay, you know, you've got all this stuff now, you're enjoying it, but in the future, there is misery coming upon you. And obviously he's talking about judgment when Jesus comes again. And in verse 2, it gives us a very puzzling picture, right? It says, Your wealth has rotted. The moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Now when you look up here, it's it's kind of really weird because the corrosion and the rotting these are all in the past tense, but these things haven't happened yet. Uh, you know because when when you read this passage, your clothes are not rotted, your your gold and silver have not been corroded. You know things have not been tarnished. But it's almost like saying the reality is a certain reality. The future reality is so certain that it's spoken of in the past tense because clothes, shoes, rot, silver, all these things get corroded, they get tarnished, things deteriorate. So the future is spoken of in the past tense because it is a certain future. But the picture is a very, very interesting picture, right? And you need to pay attention because if you don't pay attention, you won't see it the corrosion actually testifies against you in the last day. It's almost as if all the stuff that you have that corrodes will be like an eyewitness on the last day testifying against you saying, you are guilty of hoarding. You are a hoarder. Now, uh, next slide, yep, okay, so uh, this is a picture right, of someone testifying. Now, isn't it interesting because it's almost like saying all your inanimate possessions, all the stuff you keep in your cupboards, all the stuff you keep in your drawers, all the stuff that you keep in your storeroom, in your bank account, all these things you're hoarding up on the last day, their corrosion, because you just left it there, lying there, right, will actually testify against you for hoarding, and you actually be judged for it. Um, I know that uh I had a few relatives die over the years and, and one of the unenviable tasks and I don't know if any of you get to do it is to actually clear out the stuff of people who die. Have, have you all done that before? You know like people die then you got to go to their house and you got to clear out all their stuff and sometimes when you go to people's houses and you clear out all their stuff you realize that they have a lot of stuff. Right? Like, it's like, how many shoes does this person have? How many clothes does this person have? How much stuff do they have? I mean, obviously you don't realize it until they're dead and you have to clear out all their cupboards and their drawers. But what this passage is saying is all this stuff which is just kept there and hoarded, is actually going to, their corrosion is test going to testify Against you on the last day, and 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 actually say that you're guilty of hoarding. Now, I remember uh when I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking, okay, what is the picture of hoarding, right? So I always remember, you know, the Hobbit, you know, the Hobbit and the dragon, smiled, right? The next picture, you know how the dragon like he hoards all his treasure, Alright And like this, he's just got so much treasure, it just doesn't need all that treasure, but he just likes to sleep on it, right? And I was thinking, we can be like the dragon's mouth, right? We just hoard stuff, and we just have so much stuff that you don't need it, but you just, you just keep t- getting more and more. Well, is that you? Right? Because the Bible says that if that's you, then look at what the passage says. It says, their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. What a terrible image that is. That all this stuff on the last day will actually testify against you and cause you to go into judgment. Now the passage goes on in verse 4. It says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now here, it reminds us that people of faith are meant to respond with deeds. and what are our deeds of faith? Well, in the beginning in the passage in uh, the next slide, it says that we are to look after the poor and the weak, the vulnerable and those who are in distress. It says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, but here, as we read in chapter five, verse four, the opposite is happening instead of looking after the 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 weak ones, the vulnerable ones, the ones in distress. The rich are oppressing the poor, and they are oppressing the poor to exploit them for even more money. Now, I don't want to do a social commentary here, right? But around the world, you can see people are so there's some people who are so rich, but yet they keep exploiting the poor more and more. I think one of the saddest uh, things that I, I've, I've witnessed are, and you see it all the time, right? Which is even more sad is you go to Hawker centers, or you go to five-star restaurants, and then you see families uh, with their domestic helpers, and everybody's eating, but the domestic helper is not eating. Have you ever witnessed that? I've witnessed that, and I think that's really sad, right? It's like, I mean, maybe they're very considerate, and the domestic helper ate before they came for dinner, but I highly doubt it, right? But you know, it's like, I just think it's such an oppressive picture that this person is really so poor, and they're helping you, and they're feeding your kids, but they're not eating themselves. But that's the picture here, isn't it? That, that, that there are, the people are already so wealthy and rich, but yet they're exploiting other people only for their own gain. And here, it goes on to say, that you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten yourself in a day of slaughter. So here it comes back to the idea of hoarding, right? So people are hoarding, they are hoarding so that they live in luxury and self-indulgence. The focus of their wealth is themselves. But the irony is that actually all this hoarding and indulgence is actually just fattening themselves up for judgment. Now. I think this is so relevant for us in Singapore because uh Singapore is one of the richest countries in the world. Right? So are we hoarders and, and, and does our money and wealth just revolve around ourselves? We live only for our own luxuries. We live only for our own self-indulgence or do we listen to what James says and Our faith actually makes a difference in the way that we handle our wealth. Are we generous with our wealth to help other people who are needy? Do we use our wealth to love other people? Do we use our wealth in an outward expression of love rather than an inward luxury focus? So, again, if you you know to if to look at the thermometer illustration, think of the expressions in the passage that we have just read. Right? So Are we guilty of hoarding, just using our our resources just for ourselves? Are we guilty of living lives of luxury and self-indulgence, which is just all self-focused without being generous and loving to other people? Because the passage here is very straightforward. It says that misery, fire, condemnation will result if your faith doesn't have an impact on the way That we use our monies. Now verse 7 goes on to say, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now here, if you look at this passage, uh, remember in the, Bible, uh, in the church camp, uh, this uh, Andrew and Heather Reed could say, you know, what is the word that keeps being repeated? All right, so what is the word that keeps rep- being repeated here in verse 7 to 11? Patience. Very good. The word patience, right? Patience. Patience in the face of suffering. And here the Christian life is actually a stark contrast to the worldly life of indulgence because it's about patience and suffering, seeing the reward in the future when the Lord Jesus comes again. And it gives us the example of the farmer. Now obviously none of us are farmers. Maybe some of you have little gardens or even a cactus or something. right? But when you have plants, Uh, You know, you water them, and, you know, it takes a long time. So here, the farmer has to wait for autumn, the rain comes, and winter comes, and he waits again for spring, then the rain comes, and then the crop comes, the harvest comes. Can you rush the process? Can you put the crops into a microwave and speed it up? You can't. The farmer waits patiently for the crops to come. In the same way as Christians, we are told here that we are to wait patiently for the Lord's coming. Just as a farmer waits for his valuable crop, so we who are Christians wait patiently for the coming of Jesus, where we will then receive our valuable crop. Now, two other examples are given, one from the prophets and one from Job, and they're kind of like, you know, Uh, You know those shirts that people come back from Thailand wearing? Same, same, but different. right? It's the same, same, but different, right? For for both of them, the prophets and and Job, they both persevere patiently, enduring suffering. But the prophets, they died without receiving their reward. They waited patiently, patiently, patiently. They never received their reward in this life and they died. But Job... Job was different, right? He was patient in suffering, but he received his reward. And what he's trying to say is, as Christians, whether we receive our reward in this life or not, is irrelevant, because God is full of compassion and mercy, and we trust God that when Jesus comes again, we will receive our reward at that moment in time. This passage is very important for us, because... It is actually the polar opposite of this world because this world is about enjoying life now but the Christian life is about persevering patiently and getting our reward when Jesus comes. Now this passage if you look up here in the slide again I think is very important because it speaks to those who are in danger of not being in Christ and who don't really care but it says to those sort of people that look, verse 9 right, the judge is standing at the door. There is a cause in not responding to Jesus properly and remaining in danger because if you don't respond then judgment is there against you. So in conclusion, I just want to ask uh these questions, right? It's actually the same question in the next slide, right? Is your life a success, right? How would you know if your life was a success? And how would you measure success in your life? Well, in the world's eye, success is all about having the most things and the most enjoyment and getting the most satisfaction in this world. But God says through James, that success in your life is to be found in Jesus Christ, to be found in Jesus Christ, so that on the last day, when all your sins are put before you, Jesus will testify before you and says, this person, this man or woman, has been forgiven because I have paid for this person's sin. Success is where we resist the temptation of the world to hoard, to live lives of luxury and self-indulgence, but rather because of our faith in God and Jesus Christ, we are generous and we love other people. Success comes because we are patient in suffering, knowing the promises of God, the character of God's compassion and mercy, so that when Jesus comes again, that is the moment Where we will enjoy our valuable crop. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may continue to help us to live lives of faith, that you will help us to be convicted by the Holy Spirit if we are not treating wealth, money, rightly in our lives, if we are hoarding or living lives of luxury and self-indulgence. Dear Father, help us because we have faith in you, because we have faith in Jesus to love other people just as you have loved us. That we will be generous with the things that you have given us. To recognize that we have no control over tomorrow, even uh, more so, even the year later, that our lives are lives of mist and to see that true success comes by living faithfully and persevering in suffering till Jesus comes. Dear Father, help us not to be seduced by the world, but rather that the reality of your grace for us, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, would be so real for us that it will completely blot out the way the world sees its, and its attitudes of uh, material wealth and luxury and enjoyment and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ amen thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church for more information visit us online at bpc.org